Hello and welcome to Word of Mouth. I'm Erica Janik. Today we have two stories from Civics 101, one local and one national. Up first, the New Hampshire Supreme Court. How do cases end up there? What kind of cases do they take on? And what's it like to be a justice? From Civics 101 New Hampshire, here's Ben Henry on the New Hampshire Supreme Court. In 2004, a man named Jeffrey Rallis slipped and fell on a wet floor inside a market basket. Not an unusual event in the grand scheme of things. It was a nasty fall, though. He fractured his hip. Jeffrey sued at the grocery store for negligence, which again, isn't too unusual. The grocery store is supposed to be kept reasonably safe for customers, and if it's not, the store might be responsible for someone getting hurt. Here's what was unusual. It was not just a puddle of water on the floor of Market Basket that day. There were also some green beans. The scene of the incident, the produce section. And you might be thinking, who cares? Well, the New Hampshire Supreme Court cares. Hello and welcome to Civics 101 New Hampshire. I'm Ben Henry. Today, New Hampshire, like every other state, has its own Supreme Court. It's not the all-powerful arbiter of justice that the name would imply, but in cases like Jeffrey's, it does get the final word. So here's the question that was at the heart of that case. It all came down to a jury. The point of a jury, of course, is that it's just regular people. Regular people don't know the ins and the outs of the law, so the judge has to get them up to speed. They type up a little crash course in the relevant laws. It's called the jury instructions. And it's where the jury learns exactly what their job is, the decision they need to make. In Jeffrey's case, the jury instruction said, Market Basket is only responsible if they knew about that spill on the floor or if the spill had been there for so long that they should have known about it. The jury decided no. There's no evidence that the spill had been there very long. Market Basket didn't know. It's not their fault. Jeffrey lost his case. But that was not the end. And to explain why, I want to explain a little bit about how the judicial branch here in New Hampshire actually works. And I've brought in somebody who knows all about it. How many cases have you, like, brought before the New Hampshire Supreme Court? I've probably worked on over 100 appeals at, in the New Hampshire Supreme Court. This is Stephanie Houseman. She's a public defender. So the state judicial branch is basically just all the courts here in New Hampshire. So there are circuit courts, and they tend to um, take cases that are less serious, criminal and civil cases, and family court matters. Most cases wind up in circuit court, everything from a dispute with your landlord to a restraining order to contesting a speeding ticket. Then there are superior courts. There's one in every county, but two in Hillsborough. That is where jury trials take place. And these are the big cases, felonies like theft or selling drugs or disputes between individuals in which a lot of money is on the line. Hillsborough has two so that Nashua and Manchester each have their own So those are the lower courts in our state. They're sort of co-equals, although sometimes a case can start in the circuit court and then sort of bump up to the superior court. But you can appeal cases from either court to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. This whole system of courts is only for cases that involve New Hampshire law. If you go to trial for breaking a federal law, you're swimming in different waters. You'll head to a federal court. At the very top of that federal court system is the United States Supreme Court. Oh, yes, 
That is not what we're talking about here. Our Supreme Court is just for New Hampshire. But where there are open questions about does the Constitution mean you can do this or you can't do this, um, and the U.S. Supreme Court has not decided it, New Hampshire Supreme Court can decide the question. Pretty much every Supreme Court case starts with an appeal. An appeal is when somebody involved in a case in the lower courts doesn't like the way the judge ruled. They have the right to ask for a review by someone else. And the New Hampshire Supreme Court is that someone else. They review the case and decide whether the judge made a mistake. This is case number 2008-0420, Jeffrey J. Rollis versus Demula Supermarkets, Inc. So Jeffrey, the guy who fell down in Market Basket, he appealed his case. He said the jury got bad instructions. May it please the court, my name is Robert Shaines, and I'm here with uh, Laurie Lacoste, and we represent the plaintiff in this case, Jeffrey Rollis. It's not just about how long the spill had been on the floor, he said. It's a question of whether Market Basket should have anticipated that a spill would have happened there in the first place. Market was that they knew that the way the produce was displayed, it tended to wind up on the floor. This is where the green beans come in. Market Basket has got to know that green beans are going to end up on the floor of the produce section. So they should be more careful about cleaning it up. That was Jeffrey's argument. The trial court gave the following instruction, and that is... The Supreme Court was not obligated to even hear him out, though. There are classes of cases that are mandatory appeals, which if you file the document, the Supreme Court's going to take it. And then there are discretionary appeals where you have to sort of sell the case to the Supreme Court and then they decide, I will take it, I won't take it. The court tends to take most of the cases they get. They can turn away some cases that have to do with parole or probation or landlord issues, among other things. Before the court gets down to business, some clerical work has to happen. Staff create transcripts of all the lower court hearings on the case. They make a record of everything anyone said. Then... The Supreme Court says, okay, appellant, you have X number of days to file your brief. And a brief is just a written document that says, these are the issues that we're appealing. Here's the sort of factual basis that you need to know. And then here's the law. And here's why you should come to the result that we want. Is the brief um, public at the time it's filed? In almost all cases, except those that are confidential. So this is the thing that you might see quoted in news stories? Yes. Okay. Yep. And then the appellee, so the, other, the person who's not appealing, has a certain number of days. Writing a legal brief is a very particular art form. The wording needs to be extremely precise. Laws can be fickle. But the brief also must be persuasive. It needs to tell the story of the case. I actually talked to a former Supreme Court justice about this. What makes a great brief? The people who understood brief writing, if they had five issues, they wouldn't raise all five. They picked the three best arguments. John Broderick sat on the court for 15 years. He actually was there for one of the biggest cases in recent decades, the Claremont education lawsuits. That's when the court decided the state had to spend more money on public education. Huge deal. Anyways, Supreme Court justices spend a whole lot of time reading briefs. And so you'd get 64 to 70 briefs delivered to your office, and you're trying to keep up with the work that just came in the door. It's overwhelming at times. You can see why Broderick preferred short, interesting briefs. 
the Supreme Court then takes some time to decide, can we decide it just on the papers or do we want to have the lawyers come in for an oral argument? Those of us who appreciate a good courtroom drama, yes, this oral argument we're talking about for us is what we envision as like the heart of the judicial process. Take me inside the room on that day. First of all, where does this happen? The Supreme Court is on Charles Doe Drive in Concord. It is a charming building. You should go there. Okay. Um, Do you think they give tours? Can I take a tour? There's almost nothing to see. So you walk in the door. There's a clerk's office. There's public bathrooms. There is the courtroom. The um, state law library is also attached, so you could go there. It's the end of the winter now, but I love going in the winter because the courtroom has a fireplace, and they will sometimes have a crackling fire in the fireplace for winter arguments, which is very charming. And so who is in the room during these oral arguments? Almost nobody. Like, anyone can come. Almost all of them are public, um, and they post their argument list every month, but very few people come. Lawyers from each side get 15 minutes to talk. Particularly Simpson versus Walmart stores that a construction. A yellow light comes on when your time is almost up. A red light comes on when you have overstayed your welcome at the podium. There's the burden shifting rule. There's the recurrent risk rule, which Maine and a couple of other states have. I mean, does this ever get dramatic or sort of, you know, like intense? It is usually pretty low key legal stuff. It's very rarely dramatic in the sense that. Oh my gosh! Well, you know, there's there's not a lot of surprises. The justices are very good about reading through the entire briefs beforehand, so you don't start your argument from square one and be like, "This is a case about a blah blah." You know, they don't want that. They've read it all. Um, they've taken detailed notes. So, given that you, as the lawyer, what do you choose to do with that 15 minutes usually? There might be things that I definitely want to say about what the other side has said in their brief. But usually I just want to get them to understand sort of the strongest points about my argument. The argument in Jeffrey's case mostly revolved around which set of rules were relevant. His lawyer brought up another case from the New Hampshire Supreme Court back in 1961 that bore remarkable similarities to Jeffrey's. Instead of a supermarket, the scene was a porch. Instead of green beans, it was a pear. Somebody managed to slip on a pear The court back then said, hey, those pears always fall off that tree in that same spot. You should have known this would happen. Pears, green beans, they're all the same in the eyes of the law. But the trial judge, when they were giving jury instructions, they didn't mention the pear school of thought. So the jury couldn't make a fair decision. They didn't have all the information. That's the main point Jeffrey's lawyer made that day. But really the most important thing for oral argument is for the justices to ask us questions that sort of push at the limits of our argument. Let me ask you a question. If, if you're correct, that that should be the test. You might recognize this voice. It's Broderick. What do they do to avoid liability? They could do what they said they normally do, and that is keep mats, non-skid mats, in front of the areas where they knew Prados was to fall. There's no time limit on the questions. Just a panel of legal experts grilling another legal expert. They're all very polite. And when you do it for a long time, you just sort of know where they're going to press on your argument, where there's any weakness. Um, And so you know what to prepare for. And so for every argument that I do, 
most of the questions are questions that I've already anticipated. Mm -hmm. It must be kind of exciting. It is. I wish it was not bounded by time. But when they are very engaged, it's a really fun process. This process is not at all the same one that lower courts go through. The Supreme Court does not start from scratch and look at all of the facts of the case. All they do is retrace the footsteps of the lower court judge to check whether they made any mistakes. I mean, I think a lot of people think about appeals as being an all-over fairness review, that the Supreme Court, because they're the Supreme Court and they've got the most power, they look at everything, they read everything, so they would get the police reports, they would know what the witnesses would, would say, the police interviews, they would get all of that stuff and they would decide whether this person in a criminal case should be guilty of this crime or not. And that is not at all what they do. They only look at choices that the trial judge made when the trial judge was asked by one of the parties to make a decision. In the Green Bean case, the Supreme Court was not deciding whether Jeffrey had been treated fairly, whether the grocery store had made some fundamental mistake. They were making a smaller decision, though still an important one, about whether the lower court judge gave the jury a good crash course in the law. You can't just ask the Supreme Court to fix what you think is an unfair decision. It doesn't work like that. Is that ever frustrating for you in, in arguing these cases? It is frustrating. We have to sort of jump through all of these hoops to get to the outcome. And I think a person might come to an appeal thinking, I'm going to get this sort of, they're going to look at everything and they're going to see that this is unfair. And what I end up focusing on might be this very discreet part of the case um, that to them feels very small. But that's just the function of what an appeal is. After all the briefs have been filed, all the questions asked, the court gets down to business, making a decision. This is the part Stephanie Houseman doesn't actually know a lot about. This next part doesn't involve lawyers, and it isn't public. John Broderick, of course, knows all about this process. So after two cases, you'd take a recess, you'd go into the conference room, and we'd talk about the two cases we just heard. And you, the judge, would express your views, usually from junior to senior, this recess after oral argument, this is when the justices toss around some ideas and they come to a rough understanding of how the majority of them would vote on this case. Each case is then assigned to one justice, who is then responsible for writing an explanation of the court's decision, which will be called the majority opinion. You'd meet with your law clerks if you did it as I did it, and you would say, let me talk to you about this case. This is what it involved. This is what the court decided. Uh, and then the law clerks would go about doing drafts, and they'd come in periodically, they'd show me where they were, would talk about it. Every Supreme Court justice kind of runs their own miniature law firm. Each justice has a couple of clerks who might be on their way to becoming judges themselves. And they do much of the actual research and writing that goes into a Supreme Court decision. When I was an associate justice, which I was for eight years, I had two law clerks. It was a very collaborative process in my chambers, but at some point, you would get a draft that you were happy with, and then you'd circulate it to the other judges. And twice a month, we would have case conferences, just the judges. And we'd go around and we'd have all the opinions, it'd be on an agenda, and we'd talk about them. More than half the time, Broderick says the justices all agreed on this first draft of the opinion, and that was that. Other times, they would ask for some changes. And so it would be held. And you'd work with that person, and then two weeks later, a month later, you'd come back. 
And this is where the justices collaborate with each other and where each justice brings their own unique perspective to the table. Now, the Supreme Court is not a diverse institution. There have been three women to sit on the court in its entire history. The first was in the 90s, and every justice has been white. When it comes to political diversity, Broderick says the New Hampshire Supreme Court feels much less political than the big Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court. Did you feel as though you got along with your colleagues even when you disagreed with them? Oh, absolutely. I, I like my colleagues. I felt very comfortable saying I disagree, I'm dissenting. They had the same reservation sometimes. Uh, but that's how it should work. It was an intellectual exercise, important, but it was not personal. Each justice is appointed by the governor and the executive council, and they get to keep the job up until age 70, and then they have to retire. In some other states, justices are elected by the public, which means they have to act a little bit more like a politician. If they make an unpopular decision, they might lose re-election. New Hampshire justices don't have to worry about being popular, just about being right. And even though it wouldn't be banner headlines, it was affecting someone's future. This whole process takes about a year, from filing an appeal to getting a decision. Once the Supreme Court makes their decision, with only a few exceptions, that's the final word. It's over. The case is done. It doesn't just go into a file cabinet, though. In the future, lower court judges refer back to Supreme Court cases for guidance. And so when the Supreme Court then decides what a law means or interprets a statute, that helps as precedent going forward as being like, oh, okay, we know now that this statute does apply to these situations, but doesn't apply to these situations. There are other situations like the sort of constitutional law questions where, um, again, every situation that comes up is unique. And so they're deciding a unique set of facts and they're saying this violates the Constitution. Setting a precedent is a big deal. The justices are telling future lawyers and judges what the words of the state constitution and the state laws mean. You know, my view is I don't do world peace when I don't need it. And sometimes lawyers would come and ask for world peace. And you'd say, you don't really need world peace, do you, to win? What do you need to win this case? Because the longer I sat there, I realized the nuances in facts and law. And I realized that I only really had to decide the case in front of me. I didn't have to decide cases that might come in the future. I didn't need to make sweeping pronouncements. I was also sensitive to the fact that I was not the legislature. One way that the court makes absolute sure that they're doing the right thing is that they try really hard to get all five justices to agree on one decision. And so when you're trying to give direction to people and businesses about conduct and practice in your state, it's really important to the extent possible to speak with five voices. In Jeffrey's case, after the oral arguments and after one justice wrote up an opinion, they did all come to an agreement. Jeffrey had a point. The lower court judge had made a mistake. They overturned the decision. Jeffrey won his lawsuit. More word of mouth coming up after the break. Hey there, this is Ben Henry. I'm a producer here at Word of Mouth. I just wanted to let you know we are starting to work on a new series. This one is going to have serious summertime vibes. It's about the northern parts of New Hampshire, how we talk about the North Country, how we don't talk about issues up there. 
I'm excited to work on it. And before you ask, yes, my colleagues and I will be taking a road trip up north. Yes, we're going camping. Yes, it's going to be amazing. But to make this all work, we need your help. Word of mouth is driven by the curiosity of people who listen to the show. So if you have any questions about the North Country, send them to us. Our email is wordofmouth at nhpr.org. For example, what's it like on the Canadian border? Can you just walk over? You probably can. Is it hard to get good health care in rural areas? Is it even harder to find love? You guys know the deal. We will answer any old question. Word of mouth at nhpr.org. Okay, here's the show. Welcome back to Word of Mouth. I'm Erica Janik. Ten days after the Constitution was signed at the old Philadelphia State House, an anonymous op-ed appeared in the New York Journal. Signed by Cato, it cautioned readers of the new Constitution to take it with a grain of salt. Even the wisest men, it warned, can make mistakes. This launched a public debate that would last months. It was a battle for ratification, and it resulted in a glimpse into the minds of our framers. Here's Hannah McCarthy and Nick Capodice. Hey, Nick, did you ever have to write one of those what I did over my summer vacation essays in grade school? Yeah, all the time. Uh, in fact, my finest summer vacation was playing Sam Gamgee in an eight-hour production of Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Okay, I wasn't expecting that. That is, that's really, that's ambitious. But still, your thing is not as ambitious as designing a, you know, new system of government. Yeah, nowhere near as ambitious as that. No, right, because that's totally insane. You can't pull that off in four months. And yet, that is how we got our current system of government. A bunch of guys in the stifling heat in Philadelphia in this airless room with the windows nailed shut in the middle of the summer wrote our Constitution in four months. And then they stepped outside and showed the world their, you know, what I did on my summer vacation essay. By essay, you mean the Constitution. I do. The delegates to the convention published their Constitution in newspapers throughout the 13 states. And they were probably hoping for a pretty positive response. But that is not what they got. A mere 10 days after the Constitution is signed, I mean, the ink is barely dry on this thing. Some guy named Cato writes this op-ed basically saying, I know that it's really exciting that this new constitution was signed by people like George Washington, but just be careful about it. It might not be all it's cracked up to be. What, someone's already constitution bashing? What does this Cato guy know? Who is Cato anyways? Has he even read the constitution? Well, he has. But before we get into that introductions, I am Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And this is Civics 101. And today we are diving into one of the most high stakes, eloquent, intense public battles in the history of the United States. The battle that pitted the pro-Constitution Federalists against the anti-Constitution Anti-Federalists. And it sounds like the whole thing started with this guy named Cato. It did indeed. The op-ed that launched a thousand ships. As far as who Cato is and what he actually knows, we're not totally sure about that. It's most likely George Clinton, the governor of New York, but it could also be this New York politician John Williams. Whoever it is, he almost certainly did not attend the Constitutional Convention. Right, so Cato's a pseudonym. Correct. It's referring to a politician in ancient Rome who killed himself because he didn't want to live in Julius Caesar's new government. 
Cato was all about defending the Roman Republic. That is a little on the nose. Cato's saying he'd rather die than live under this new constitution? Bingo. At the time, most educated men would have picked up on the symbolism of this. The name Cato had actually been used to critique the British government in the past. Okay, so the framers are a bunch of classics nerds. I can appreciate that. I think it's kind of endearing. But why New York? This essay gets published in New York. It's written by a New York politician. New York, what's your damage? Well, New York is not super happy with the new constitution. Of the three delegates they send to the Constitutional Convention, two walk out. Only Alexander Hamilton stayed behind, but he's pretty thrilled with the Constitution. A lot of New York congressmen do not feel the same way. They do not want to see the states consolidated under this one powerful central government. And they really don't believe that the Constitution can guarantee equal and permanent liberty, like its proponents claim. So who's Cato writing the op-ed for, exactly? The whole Cato-Roman Republic metaphor seems like pretty inside baseball. Like, your average farmer probably doesn't know what's being referenced here. You know, the average farmer is not who Cato is speaking to. Right now, the Constitution is only a piece of paper with a bunch of ideas. It doesn't carry any real power. And Cato wants to stop that power from happening altogether. All right, so he's talking to the guys in charge. Yeah, politicians, delegates. White, literate men. Of course, those are the ones who were at the Constitutional Convention. Those were the ones who were going to be in the ratifying conventions. This is Claire Griffin. She's a former government and history teacher and a consultant in civic education. Like she said, the Cato letter is addressed to the people who will be voting on whether or not to ratify the Constitution. Nine out of 13 states have to ratify in order for the Constitution to go into effect. And the Cato letter is the first of many, many op-eds criticizing the Constitution. Well, they were a series of about 150 articles written by quite literally dozens of opponents to the Constitution. Uh, these were published not just in New York, but in New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Maryland. Again, kind of the same time frame, September of 1787 through December of 1788. And their purpose was to dissuade the delegates to the ratifying conventions from supporting the Constitution. Also, it wasn't just Cato. Nope. They had a Brutus, a Sentinel, they had an old wig, and that's W-H-I-G. Collectively, these writers were known as the anti-federalists, and these were really smart men with really well-informed ideas. All right, so being an anti-federalist doesn't make you unreasonable or opposed to government of any kind, necessarily. Not at all. Before we go on, I, I should almost apologize for calling them anti-federalists because nobody wants to be called anti-anything. And that name, anti-federalist, actually came from the federalists to describe their opponents. And because history is often written by the victors, the name anti-federalist has stuck, and we'll use that in our conversation. They would have called themselves pro-Republicans, Republican with a small r. Wait, what does she mean by that, small r Republicans? Oh, what she means is as opposed to the big R Republican Party. Small r Republicans are just in favor of a republic, which most basically is a government where power rests with the people. They're anti-federalists because they're not thrilled with strict 
federalism, which is basically a centralized federal government that works with smaller state and local governments. The anti-federalists would prefer a government closer to the Articles of Confederation, with its really weak central government and plenty of state power. But the guys who are writing what we call the anti-federalist papers, they wouldn't have actually called themselves anti-federalists, right? No, no way. Their opponents gave them that label, which is actually a pretty strong PR move, calling a group anti-anything. It just makes them seem negative. And in this case, the other group of guys calls themselves the Federalists. The Anti-Federalists probably would have called them the anti-little-r Republicans. All right, so when do the Federalists actually enter the fight? So far, we've just got this op-ed by Cato. Yeah, it's actually quite a while before the Anti-Federalists make their move. The little-r Republicans have published 21 statements by the time we hear from the pro-Constitution guys, which I found pretty surprising. Because when I learned about this time period in school, I learned about the Federalists. The Federalists were this big deal, these guys who explained the Constitution. And I'm almost certain that I didn't read a single anti-Federalist paper back then. And yet, they were the ones who kicked everything off. We might not have the Federalist papers as we know them today without the anti-Federalists. So I'm guessing the pro-Constitution framers get to a point where they're like, all right, enough. We can't let this go anymore. These guys are killing us with bad press. Exactly. And they're not just in New York anymore. Cato inspired critics in other states as well. But the soon-to-be capital-F Federalists aren't just, you know, sitting there twiddling their thumbs while all of this is going on. They're making plans. And then on October 27th, it happens. The first Federalist essay hits the presses of a New York paper. Number one, the very first one written by Alexander Hamilton, in which he's laying out the case for a, a new constitution, something to replace the Articles of Confederation. Federalist One, otherwise known as Publius One. Publius? <laughs> yes, yes. It's a silly-sounding name. Publius was a guy in ancient Rome who helped to overthrow the monarchy and create the Republic of the People. Oh, that is a clever move by Hamilton, right? Because Cato kicked things off with a name that's in defense of the Republic, and then Hamilton comes back at him like, no way, man, you got this all wrong. I'm the guy who establishes a representative government. I'm the guy who gives power to the people. You must be the other guy. What I love about Federalist Number 1 is that Hamilton refers to the fact that the American people now have a chance to make decisions to create a government based on reflection and choice, not accident and force. Meanwhile, an anti-federalist calling himself John DeWitt publishes in Massachusetts. He reads the Constitution, and what he sees is this permanent document that will never change. He basically says, don't let them fool you. That amendment clause is useless. Congress is never going to achieve that three-fourths majority they're talking about because that would require too many people to agree. He calls it an absolute impossibility. It's interesting because we know that the Constitution does end up getting amended. But back then, there must have been so much anxiety about this new system of government. How could they possibly know it was going to work out? The Anti-Federalists are just saying, hey, we can't take this gigantic radical leap into a brand new system. 
especially one that throws us into a stronger government, we just escaped a stronger government. Right. And the Federalists were saying, look, we have got to beef up the federal government because the way that it is now is a disaster. We got it wrong. We went too far toward a government of the people. It is too divided. So the first Anti-Federalist drops in late September. Publius I arrives about a month later, and it says, Okay, so we've heard some concerns. We are going to write a series of essays that are going to answer all your questions about this new constitution. This is Cheryl Cook Callio. She's a former teacher and former council member in Pleasanton, California. And then he and John Jay and Madison methodically went through every single thing that was concerning and tried to answer those questions in 85 essays. 85? How are we going to get through 85 essays in one episode? Actually, it's probably more than 85 because when you lump in the Anti-Federalists and a few other things written at the time, you're really looking at closer to 140-plus articles. But don't despair. The point of this episode is to get a sense of what this fight actually looked like. What were the arguments for and against this nation-changing document? And how did the Federalists' approach to these op-eds help their game? Uh, They were put in a collection, and they started to disseminate that collection throughout the colonies. And again, in contrast to the Anti-Federalists that were very much individual essays that were now written in defense of their position. So the Federalists are working together, and guys like Cato and Brutus and the old Whig are just coming at it from their own individual perspectives. The Anti-Federalists were certainly sharing their opinions with one another, but it wasn't a unified front the way that it was with Alexander Hamilton and James Madison and John Jay. Jay, by the way, wasn't at the Constitutional Convention. But he was a powerful New Yorker and Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Articles of Confederation. So while the Anti-Federalists comprised over a dozen different authors and pseudonyms, those three Federalists published only as Publius. There were certainly other pro-Constitution people writing op-eds, but it was Publius who shone the brightest. Do you think that's part of the reason why the Federalists ended up being successful? You know, in my opinion, yes. And, and I base this on a, on a couple of things. One is that Hamilton and Madison in particular were planners. They had written out their justifications for particular things even before they would get into the Constitutional Convention. They would have the ammunition they needed to support something. Also, I think Madison, James Madison in particular, is a pragmatist. He knew that There needed to be a different type of government. He knew that under the Articles Confederation, the government was way too weak to survive. And he was prepared to do what he needed to do to get a different structure in place. Here is another agreed-upon favorite that sheds some real light. This one is by James Madison. And actually, a lot of the favorites are by James Madison. I do like Federalist 10. I think that Madison was right when he said that factions are bad, but they're inevitable, and that the only way to mitigate these factions is to balance them out. Madison published Federalist 10 on November 22nd. This is after anti-federalists like Cato expressed concerns about this centralized Congress with so many different special interests. 
Basically, he was saying, how is the government going to get anything done with this system? It'll be a house divided. It'll be useless, just a bunch of factions. Madison has to prove that the new system of government is actually the best way to deal with factions. But what did Madison actually mean by factions? Like political parties? Well, back in the day, the U.S. didn't really have the party system the way that it looks today. So it'd be less party factions and more like opposed special interest groups. And Madison's biggest concern was over the special interest groups who would fight against what was best for everybody. A good example back then would have been slave owners versus abolitionists. Here's Claire again. He's writing about the advantages of a large republic, again, republic with a small r, where individuals choose their elected representatives. Political philosophers before Madison were pretty certain that a republic would only work in a small, geographically small area with a fairly homogeneous population. And Madison says just the opposite. He said a republic works best when the territory is large and expanded, And when there are so many different interests and groups, he used the word faction, that all these different interest groups offset each other. No minority is persecuted against. No majority ever has complete sway. Madison also focuses on the economy in Federalist 10. And at this point in history, the U.S. economy is really not doing so hot. He describes unequal property distribution with some people having everything and some people having nothing. And this, he says, can create factions too, the wealthy versus the poor. His large republic, where you've got a Congress representing the many scattered views of the common people, will work to balance this out. It seems like Madison and the other Federalists are going to have an answer for every concern the Anti-Federalists put their way. Yeah, they pretty much do. More word of mouth after the break. Hey, it's Ben again. If you just tuned in, I want to let you know that we are starting a new series about northern New Hampshire and what a cool, unique place it is. This show is driven by questions from listeners, so if you have any questions whatsoever about the North Country, send them to us. We'll see if we can answer it. Word of mouth at nhpr.org. Okay, back to the show. Welcome back to Word of Mouth. I'm Erica Janik. We're picking up the story of The Federalists with Hannah McCarthy and Nick Capodice. And a big part of defending the Constitution is explaining the Constitution. Like when anti-federalist Brutus argues that the Supreme Court would be, quote, exalted above all other power in the government and subject to no control. And Hamilton is like, okay, let me break it down for you. Number 78, Alexander Hamilton, again, is writing about the importance of the independent judiciary. And I'm not sure whether or not he really believed it, but he said that of the three branches, the judiciary would be the weakest. He said they have neither the force of the sword nor the pen, the idea being they have no way to enforce what their judgment is. And he also emphasized that they were called upon to exercise judgment about laws but not will, as in they are not the lawmakers. So when you hear discussions about uh, activist judges or judicial overreach, or even questions about judicial review, today, Hamilton was raising those questions back in 1788. And then there's the president, 
The Anti-Federalists looked at Article 2 and they were not happy with what they saw. I would imagine that Anti-Federalists are looking at the role of the president and thinking, hmm, this looks mighty familiar. Yep. But the Federalists believe that there is a very good reason for this executive power. Number 70, written by Alexander Hamilton, this is where he writes about the importance of energy in the executive branch. The writers of the Constitution were looking at the immediate past history when we were governed under the Articles of Confederation. One of the major weaknesses of the government under the Articles, there was no chief executive. And so Hamilton, whom some have called a monarchist, which I think is unfair, Hamilton was arguing for a strong executive individual and a strong executive branch. And the executive branch that's laid out in the Constitution doesn't say all that much about putting a check on this new executive. The Anti-Federalists feared that between veto power and pardon power, you'd end up with a president who could bend the nation to his will. Well, if you look, you know, throughout American history, we've had a series of very strong executives, and usually it's in times of crisis. Um, but is a strong executive the best for our nation? You know, and the Anti-Federalists would say, you know, no, that's not such a good idea. Um, you know, the Federalists were arguing generally in favor of a large government, or at least a government larger uh, than that which had existed prior. And certainly big government can do great and wonderful things. But the Anti-Federalists were saying, well, not so fast. Maybe we don't want a huge government bureaucracy. So it's kind of interesting. You could say that the Federalists were successful. You know, they got their desired outcome. The Constitution was ratified. And the Federalist Papers have become integral to our understanding of our founding. However, if you look at the Anti-Federalists, given some of the questions and concerns that that they raised then that are still with us today, we may decide that, after all, they ended up having the last laugh. That is a really interesting point. The Federalists won, so that's the history that counts, right? And we look to the Federalist Papers to better understand the Constitution, and that makes them an amazing resource. But it does seem like the Anti-Federalists are raising valid points. Yeah, absolutely. And remember, the Anti-Federalists are posing a real threat. First of all, these essays are public, so if you can read and you don't like what you're reading about this proposed Constitution, you might just give your representative an earful down at the tavern or out on the street or after church. And then there's the fact that some of these Anti-Federalists are going to be voting on whether or not to adopt the Constitution. So they have a very real say in the future of the country. And on top of all that, the Constitution only needs the support of nine states to be ratified, right? But that means that as many as four states could choose not to ratify and potentially even sever ties with the new nation. So no more union. Union over. And the country ends up being the very failure that so many framers were anxious to prevent. So the Federalists do have to listen to the Anti-Federalists to an extent. And not just to calm their fears or do damage control with the anti-Fed op-eds. Right. 
the Constitution is up for a vote in ratifying conventions across the country. And some states like Delaware, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, they're quick to ratify. They do it in December of 1787. But the op-eds don't stop. The Federalists and Anti-Federalists are still battling it out into the spring and then into the summer of 1788. Because there are a lot of very loud dissenters arguing that the Constitution is illegal under the Articles of Confederation. That it's a document written by wealthy upper-class people to benefit their own interests. That it deprives states of their individual rights in favor of this big central government. Yeah, how do the Federalists reconcile that issue? Because it sounds like anti-federalists are all about states having sovereignty and looking out for their own and making their own choices. So how can the federalists make this big government remotely appealing to them? Well, Madison does dig into that by explaining how, in broad terms, this government is going to work. Here's Cheryl again. When he's trying to explain it, one of the things he says, and this is a quote from Federalist 39, in its foundation, it is federal, not national. In the sources from which the ordinary powers of government are drawn, it is partly federal and partly national. In the operation of these powers, it is national, not federal. In the extent of them, again, it is federal, not national. And finally, in the authoritative mode of introducing amendments, it is neither wholly federal or wholly national. Now, that's enough to make anybody's eyes cross two or three times. It sounds like doublespeak. Yeah, I really don't understand what Madison is talking about. Is he canceling out his own argument? And what does he mean by federal versus national? Aren't they the same thing? When you deconstruct the paragraph, it really does illustrate the nature of federalism. Sometimes the states are in charge, sometimes the national government's in charge, and sometimes the federal government, which is the combination of the two, is in charge. And these things change depending on the circumstance. He would then go on to say that this is really a check, this idea that you have state power that doesn't belong to the federal government. An example of this is police powers. That's a state power. There's a number of things like that. And sometimes the lines are blurred and sometimes they're not. All right. So in other words, Madison is saying, look, this strong federal government is not designed to deprive states of all power. Sometimes the states get to decide and sometimes the federal government gets to decide. Sometimes they decide together. Right. He's saying this document is not as extreme as these anti-federalists are making it out to be. Don't worry. You'll retain some states' rights. Of course, that doesn't address the little problem of the federal government being at the top of the food chain. And the anti-federalists are like, we're afraid of tyranny, remember? And this constitution doesn't say anything about protecting the little guy. You can't just kind of vaguely say, don't worry, individual citizens, you'll be fine. The anti-federalists want this in writing. Okay, I've been waiting for this. This is the big old glaring omission in the Constitution of 1787, and we're talking about the Bill of Rights. Where's that Bill of Rights? That is exactly what the anti-federalists were saying. Where is the Bill of Rights? It might seem like a no-brainer for us, but... At the time, the Federalists were like, no, 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 we don't need to add anything to the Constitution. It's overkill. It's redundant. In the last uh, Federalist paper, which is 
probably significant for what it argues against, not for what it argues in favor of, is number 84, in which Hamilton argues against a Bill of Rights. Now, today for us in the 21st century, a Bill of Rights is sacrosanct. It's right up there with the Declaration and the Constitution. It is one of the founding documents. It's hard for us to understand how could we not have a Bill of Rights. But if you look at Hamilton's arguments, they could be pretty persuasive. Hamilton's main argument was that there's protection kind of built into the Constitution already. The federal government only has the powers that are laid out in the Constitution. And this idea of making a list of what the government is not allowed to do to individuals or to states, well, Hamilton says if you start listing them at all, you've got to list all of them. And by the way, you're bound to forget something, and if it doesn't end up on the list, well, the government might have the power to impose it. All right, so I know we've been saying the Anti-Federalists lost the war, but they did win this battle. Big time. At the end of the Federalist-Anti-Federalist saga, we are going to have a constitution. But first, the Anti-Federalists need a little something. Actually, they need ten little somethings. Ten somethings that will change the course of history and come to mean everything to the American people. In a last-ditch effort to save the Union, our civil liberties will be born. But how does it happen? How in Sam Hill does it happen, Nick? Find out next time on Civics 101. That's it for Word of Mouth this week and our deep dive into civics, local and national. You can stay up to date on all things Civics 101 by visiting civics101podcast.org. There you'll find the latest episodes from Civics 101 as well as the episodes from Civics 101 New Hampshire. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week's show was produced by me, Erica Janik, with Ben Henry, Daniela Ali, Jackie Helbert, Nick Capodice, and Hannah McCarthy. Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 